Hello and welcome to this presentation. My name is Charlie and today we're going to be talking about the treatment of Flavia Verde, especially Zika, Dengue, and Yellow Fever. My background is currently I'm an Associate Professor of Pharmacy Practice at the University of Finley College of Pharmacy. I've been in this role for about 11 years now. Um, I'm also currently employed as a consultant pharmacist for a local long-term care nursing home pharmacy. In that role, I deal a lot with geriatric patients. So some of you may be wondering, well, what in the world are you doing talking about something such as tropical diseases or tropical medicine? And largely that's due to just a very strong interest that I have in this particular topic. Um, while I was in college, I first became exposed to uh, international travel and going on international medical mission trips. And I've continued to do that as much as possible in my adult life as I've been able to and so it's, it's just a continuing, ongoing, something that interests me quite a bit. Uh, disclosure information, I really have nothing to disclose. Uh, the, the treatments that we'll talk about today, there's nothing really interesting from an off-label or investigational use. It's pretty well, fairly typical sorts of treatments. And then there's obviously no financial relationships to <clears throat> Learning objectives. Essentially, hopefully by the time we, we end today, uh, you'll be able to identify and be able to do all the things that are listed here in these learning objectives. And, and basically, it just focuses around what are the different viruses, the, the main three that we're going to talk about today, and how do we deal with patients who happen to have them? How do we prevent patients from ever becoming infected with them? And just some other common sort of, of So. What is a flavivirus? Some of you may be even wondering that. And flavi, uh, flavus really, is Latin for yellow. And so the name itself really comes from the yellow fever virus, which is one that we'll be talking about today. Uh, they belong to the family Flaviveridae and the genus Flavivirus. And generally these include arboviruses. Um, arboviruses is just a fancy word for uh, viruses that are transmitted by arthropods. Specifically, the ones we're most worried about here are those that are transmitted by mosquitoes or ticks. And so most of these flaviviruses are going to be transmitted by mosquitoes. A few of them are also transmitted by ticks. And so we'll, we'll talk about that as well. Um, there's also definitely documented transmission from human to human. Uh, yellow fever, dengue fever, and Zika all have documentation where it has been directly transmitted from human to human, usually with... Uh, you know, some sort of contact with blood or other, or other bodily fluids. Humans typically are a dead end host. So while there is documented human transmission, most of the time this is something that in, in humans is not readily transferred. It's not something, you know, like everything right now with the coronavirus. It's not something that is spread as easily uh, as, as coronaviruses. It's not something that's spread probably even as easily as something like the influenza virus. Um, so typically, humans are the dead-end host, meaning it doesn't really get out of our bodies. Now, if we are infected with one of these viruses and one of those arthropods, mosquitoes generally, come and bite us while we are infected with one of these viruses, then that mosquito can, of course, carry it on to another human. Interestingly, there are more than 70 known flaviviruses. Uh, hepatitis C, for example, is, is a flavivirus um, that is spread somewhat easily from human to human through blood and other bodily fluids. West Nile virus is another flavivirus. So there's plenty of flaviviruses that are out there, um, some of which you've heard, but many of which you've never heard of before in your life. History of Zika. So let's move on and start talking about the three viruses that we are predominantly going to focus on today. And, and Zika is one that is, is new, I think, to many of us. But when you look from a historical perspective, Zika is certainly not new. It was first uh, identified or first discovered in 1947 uh, in a macaw monkey in Uganda. So while, again, it didn't really become part of our 
normal or common nomenclature until about 2015 or 2016. It is certainly something that is not new. Uh, Zika, where does that name come from? Well, it comes from the name of the forest that that monkey was found in. So that macaw monkey in Uganda was found within the Zika forest. Thereby, we now know this or continue to know this virus as the Zika virus. Um, when they found this virus, they were actually doing yellow fever virus uh, research in that area. It happened to come across this monkey that had a flavivirus, but was not the flavivirus they were looking for. Uh, for, for basically the next 60 or so years, we didn't know that this virus could be transmitted within humans. Uh, we didn't know that illness was a possibility from this. It was first, again, isolated, and then subsequent research showed that it was within some of the monkeys within Uganda and other parts of Africa, but was not really thought to infect or cause problems for humans. Then, of course... 2015 came along and definitely 2016 and this became very common uh, a very commonly known disease throughout the world uh, it definitely hit the news definitely hit a, a lot of local populations throughout many parts of the world especially looking at uh, parts of south america and central america transmission cycles of zika uh, in and of itself, so there's there's three main modes of looking at this. One is definitely the sylvatic, where it is found within nature. And so you look at this, uh, there's several different types of monkeys, specifically within nature, that we can find this Zika virus. Most of those are, th are currently in Africa. And then we have definitely zones of emergence. Those are starting to get into more of uh, some villages out in the still the middle of nowhere but we start to see um, definitely some uh, derivation or some of these start to show up in some villages and then of course it became a very urban problem in 2015 2016 particularly in south america uh, when you look at the urban problem you start seeing not just in in some mammals but you also see it throughout in looking at the 80s aegypti, 80s albopictus, which are very common sorts of mosquitoes that you can find in many parts of the world. So once it gets into that population, it becomes much more difficult to really get a handle on and really try to slow the spread of that disease at that point in time. And of course, we have Homo sapiens. Again, once we get into humans, you can definitely see it blow up, which is exactly what we started to see in 2015-2016. So Zika now is found pretty much everywhere in the tropics. Transmitted, primarily is still transmitted by mosquitoes. But, as you are all probably well aware of, you know, one of the big reasons why this became a very common sort of disease or a disease that made the news quite a bit, was because of the capability of this virus to not just spread from mosquito to person, but also from person to person. And so mother to child uh, was a big risk factor, is a big risk factor of this virus. Uh, sexual transmission and then blood transfusion as well. Now most of the blood supply is screened against Zika, so hopefully there's no more a transmission through that route but we definitely still have other routes of that and then again another big reason why this made the news was the microcephaly birth defect that it seems to cause and so that microcephaly definitely can lead to uh, pretty severe problems for that baby for that infant for that child and that is again one of the big reasons why we have to be very very careful when you look at this map, uh, so this is a world map of areas with risk for Zika. Um, and, and looking at the different colors, country or territory with current risk uh, for Zika outbreak, or with a current Zika outbreak, you, you'll see that I'm quite colorblind, but I don't think I really see any current countries that are that color. Uh, this is a map from earlier this year. So right now, uh, Zika... Um, is not something that is widely spreading from person to person. Uh, country or territory that has ever reported Zika, uh, so current or past, we see that, I believe that's a purple, a darker purple sort of color, 
And so definitely, we see that throughout the United States, throughout Central America, throughout uh, South America, which is when we all became quite aware of it a few years ago. We definitely see areas within Africa and in Asia as well. Then, of course, we have the, the, the lighter color purples, usually within that purple area. We don't see Zika transmitted in that area simply because of the elevation. Because of that high elevation above about 2,000 meters or 6,500 feet, the mosquitoes that commonly transmit this virus, they don't live at that high of an elevation. So that's why we don't see that virus transmitted very well within those areas. Uh, the, the yellow, um, this is an area where the mosquitoes that are known to carry Zika virus live, but there has not been, at least to date, any reported Zika cases. Now, again, I think if you look through a lot of Africa and even parts of Asia uh, where you have those yellow countries right next to the purple countries, I think there's a pretty high likelihood that within some of those yellow countries, there has been or is currently some Zika that is being transmitted. It just hasn't been caught and reported as such. And then the green countries, uh, this is where, <clears throat> excuse me, there is no mosquitoes that are thought to live in that area that can lead to or carry the mosquito or carry the Zika virus by itself. So without that vector, without that mosquito living in those areas, it's very, very unlikely that it will um, transmit within those countries. Symptoms. A common theme I think you'll find throughout our time together today is that most people won't have any symptoms. There's a decent chance that somebody listening to this uh to this presentation was at one point in time infected with Zika but never actually had any symptoms and therefore never really knew they were infected with Zika. If symptoms are present, they're typically what we consider or what we commonly call these quote-unquote flu-like symptoms. A fever, headache, muscle pain, those things we've all had in the past that are related to some sort of virus or another, but usually we get over. Uh, one of the things that shows up a little bit more uncommonly with this one is the conjunctivitis. We don't always see red eyes associated with a viral illness when in, when in combination with some of these other quote-unquote flu-like symptoms. If a patient goes on to develop these symptoms, fortunately they don't hang around for forever. Most of the time they just last about a week. And then they go away. For Zika in and of itself, from a, a treatment perspective, there's not one specific treatment for Zika. We'll see this commonality again throughout the, our time together as well today. Symptoms. Usually you just are reacting to the symptoms. Acetaminophen. You know, if you have a fever, if you have some minor aches and pains, what do you take? Acetaminophen works very well. NSAIDs. NSAIDs work very well for Zika. Uh, for the, the, the symptoms of Zika, for that muscle ache, for that fever, NSAIDs work very well. Um, and so I want to make sure you understand that. But I also want to make sure you understand it's recommended and very highly recommended to stay away or don't just use NSAIDs until dengue fever has been ruled out. Why is that? Well, as we'll talk about next, the dengue fever comes with a risk of bleeding. When you look at maps of where dengue fever were, so if you go back to that previous slide where we saw where Zika is, where dengue fever is, again, you notice a lot of these countries overlap. And so until you can rule out dengue fever, which can increase the risk of bleeding, you don't want to use an NSAID. NSAIDs can also increase the risk of bleeding. So NSAIDs here we're talking about are things like ibuprofen, uh, predominantly, naproxen, definitely as well. Other NSAIDs uh, that are prescription only, such as meloxicam or celecoxib, those definitely you should stay away from until we know for sure that at least this patient doesn't have dengue fever. For most patients with Zika, again, some acetaminophen, uh, taking it easy for a few days, drinking plenty of fluids, resting, that's all they need, and they will be just fine. Travel recommendations. This is where I think it's still important to understand where Zika is, where the risk for Zika is, um, especially in that mother who is pregnant 
in that family either who's trying to get pregnant. Um, it's really recommended. So one, if you are pregnant, to not travel to an area where there is Zika or where there could be Zika uh, because of the risk potentially, uh, especially microcephaly, to that baby. If you are planning to get pregnant, uh, and if you are a male traveler, so if you are a male, you're traveling to an area where there is Zika, and you're trying to begin or add on to your family, it's recommended that you wait three months. Females, it's recommended that you wait two months before trying to get pregnant after travel to a country where there is Zika. Why the difference in time frames? Why is it three months for men and two months for women? Well, what's been found with Zika and, and some other viruses as well, Ebola definitely being one of them, is that Zika virus can live within semen for a longer period of time uh, than within other parts of the body, other uh, in, in females. And so that is the main reason because the Zika virus can hang out for quite a long time, up to about three months within men. All right, so that's Zika. So just uh, that quick summary, what do we do? What do we not do? You know, from a, a treatment perspective, we're looking at largely just making sure that that patient is safe. Most patients with Zika have very, uh, very low symptoms or no symptoms. And so maybe all they need is some acetaminophen. You're largely, for a Zika patient, ruling out the possibility that there could be a, a potentially more serious virus such as dengue fever. So with that sort of segue, here is dengue. Dengue fever has been around for a long time as well. Even uh, It's been documented definitely longer than Zika. Uh, dengue fever is first documented by a revolutionary revolutionary war um, physician by the name of Dr. Benjamin Rush, and he classified it in 1780 as "quote unquote" break bone fever. Once we start talking about the symptoms, you'll find out why it was called break bone fever. As you probably can figure out, this disease can cause pretty severe bone pain in some patients. Outbreaks uh, have been really throughout large parts of the world over time. Uh, in the early 20th century, so less than 100 years ago, we had pretty severe outbreaks in Florida. 1945, at the end of World War II, there was a pretty uh, nasty outbreak in New Orleans. And, and so again, those are just giving you some examples of where this disease has been in the United States. Uh, currently, we'll talk see this in, in a little bit of map, we still get transmission of dengue fever here in the United States as well. Um, in 1903, it was found out that this disease was, in fact, transmitted by mosquitoes, so a little over 100 years ago, and then again discovered that it was a virus in 1906. In 1944, a physician who you are pretty well aware of, uh, Dr. Sabin, noted that, um, that just because you became infected with dengue fever at one point in time or another, that you did not necessarily uh, become protected against dengue all the time. There are no, and, uh, a total of four known serotypes of dengue fever, and so you can potentially become infected with any one of those at any point in time. So dengue 1, dengue 2, dengue 3, and dengue 4. Those are all known uh, serotypes of dengue fever. And again, just because you had dengue fever at one point in time or another, you can still get dengue fever at some point in time in the future because of those four different serotypes. So looking at the transmission cycles of uh, dengue and yellow fever, kind of giving you a segue, these two are very, very similar uh, together. So dengue and yellow fever, again, within the sylvatic, within nature, uh, the host is thought to be within different types of monkeys. As you get into villages, um, that, that host then uh, starts to use the vector, and that vector is, again, the mosquito. Once you get into urban areas, you look at where you find this, and you find it pretty much in humans or in different types of mosquitoes. Again, Aedes aegypti, Aedes albopictus are the two most commonly found mosquitoes where you will find both dengue and yellow fever. Again, 80s, 80s aegypti, 80s albopictus are found throughout large parts of the, of the world. And that is why we have a, a pretty wide range of where.
So again, dengue fever found throughout Central and South America, definitely in Asia as well. Tends to be most commonly, again, transmitted from mosquitoes. But again, due to the nature of this disease, it can very easily be passed from mother to child at birth, as well as uh, throughout or through transfusion. So, so here's a little bit of a map of where we currently find uh, dengue fever, or where there is at least risk of getting dengue fever. And so from the CDC, you can see the dark colors there are where we see frequent or continuous transmission of dengue fever. Um, the slightly uh, not quite as dark blue or bluish gray color um, is sporadic or uncertain, so we can definitely still see it within those areas as well. And then again now, currently throughout large parts of North America, Europe, uh, and Northern Asia, and Australia, we don't see any evidence or current risk of developing dengue fever. As you can tell from this little blowout map here, uh, throughout the Caribbean, many of us like to, if we're not on, on mission somewhere, travel for vacation throughout the Caribbean, or at least we did before Corona. And you can see large parts of the Caribbean, or pretty much all the Caribbean, there is a frequent uh, risk of developing dengue fever in those countries, or in those Interestingly, um, we currently still have dengue fever here within the United States. Again, go back in time 100 years or even less than that, and we definitely had widespread, maybe not widespread, but throughout a lot of, of the southern part of, of the United States, we definitely had dengue fever that was transmitted. Uh, this map is showing where dengue has been reported. Uh, if you happen to see your own state um, in a blue or dark blue color here, uh, realize that many of those states, this is not spread within that state. This is all documented cases. So, for example, looking at Washington State, uh, looks to be that within 2020, at least through September of 2020, there was somewhere in the neighborhood of 6 to 50 cases within Washington State. All of those cases within Washington State were from travelers who had been to an area where there was dengue fever. Dengue fever is a reportable condition throughout all the United States. So as soon as your local health department or hospital becomes aware of a patient living within that zone who has dengue fever, they do have to report that to the CDC. Now, I wanna point out or pick on Florida a little bit. Um, so, so far through September of this year, there were 82 cases of dengue fever in Florida. Of them, of note, 55 were not transmitted from travel, uh, meaning that those 55 patients did not travel to Puerto Rico, did not travel um, to parts of Central or South America, did not travel to Asia. And those are what we call autochthonous cases, meaning that those cases were, were transmitted within Florida. They didn't leave the state. And so only 27 of the 82 cases to date in 2020 were actually obtained through travel. Uh, within Florida. So again, we currently see spread, at least in a small amount, of dengue fever within Florida, particularly southern Florida. I believe there's one or two cases up in the northern parts of Florida, but most of those are within the southern uh, couple counties of Florida. Uh, occasionally, we will also see cases with uh, of autochthonous transmission in southern Texas, as well as Hawaii, uh, currently through 2020, all autochthonous cases of dengue in the United States were all within Florida. Um, so again, just kind of somewhat interesting. I don't think dengue fever really ever hits the news uh, unless you're probably in Southern Florida and you, there's a case that going on there. You probably don't really hear about fever being transmitted in the U.S., but it is. Symptoms. So only about 25% of, of our patients who have dengue fever will have symptoms. So similar to Zika, most patients will have symptoms. If you are that unlucky 25%, symptoms, again, are pretty commonly flu-like. Uh, nausea, vomiting, uh, rash potential, uh, which is seen with many types of viruses, and then your common muscle aches and pains. Again, we've all been there. We've all done that. We've all had some sort of virus that caused that, so we can relate to the symptoms that can have with dengue fever. Um... Of those who develop symptoms, so of that 25%, approximately 1 in 20 will show up with very severe symptoms. Uh, these very severe symptoms 
Uh, definitely includes shock, can lead to internal bleeding. Remember that inside thing we talked about with Zika, um, as well as death. Signs of severe disease, stomach tenderness, vomiting of at least three times within 24 hours, bleeding from the nose, bleeding from the gums, uh, throwing up blood or blood in the stool. If any of those symptoms show up and you have a patient who is in or has been to recently an area of the world where there was dengue fever, you definitely need to consider dengue as the cause of this of these symptoms that that patient might be having. Treatments. What do we do for dengue? Basically, it's the same sort of thing we talked about with Zika, but here definitely stay away from incidents, even in mild patients. Again, one in 20 of those patients who have mild disease, only one in 20, can go on and develop serious disease. And so with that serious disease, we definitely have the risk of bleeding. And so we want to stay away from NSAIDs. Um, so definitely no NSAID use in dengue fever. Dengue fever uh, definitely uh, may require hospitalization. And so in that severe case, the patient, if possible, probably needs to be hospitalized and monitored very carefully once those symptoms of severe dengue show up. Um, other things for dengue fever, severe um, perspective, and I recommend, I, I highly recommend you go to the CDC website and search dengue fever. If you go to the healthcare professional tab within that dengue fever, uh, they give a nice little one page handout that you can download and save for the treatment of dengue fever, especially the severe disease. And all this stuff as well as so much more is contained within that. But it's not recommended to use corticosteroids. They seem to make the disease worse. Not recommended to use platelets by themselves because they, they don't really seem to help. And, and not recommended to use half normal saline, but rather recommended to use isotonic saline, such as normal saline or D545. Um, but not recommended to use the half normal saline because they need the isotonicity uh, associated with that if, if they develop shock. So again, as that segue, patients in shock, they need isotonic crystalloids. Uh, whatever isotonic crystalloid you happen to have available if you're in the middle of nowhere in Africa it is perfectly acceptable. Or if you happen to be lucky enough to have albumin, that can definitely help a dengue fever who's in shock, uh, uh, a patient who has dengue fever with shock along quite well. If there is significant bleeding, packed red blood cells have been shown to help um, travel recommendations for dengue. Basically, it really focuses on trying to prevent getting bit by mosquito bite. And while malaria is not something we're talking about today, when you look at dengue fever, as pretty much as far as I know, there's a risk of malaria in all of those areas as well. Um, and so patients who are traveling to these areas uh, hopefully are already taking these precautions because malaria is probably a lot more commonly transmitted than dengue fever. Um, but again, trying to limit mosquito bites. Um, so taking such things along as long sleeves, repellent. Um, the acetaminophen doesn't really limit mosquito bites. It's probably kind of laid out a little bit weirdly in that slide. But it's recommended that you take acetaminophen with you just in case you do develop any symptoms of dengue fever. Again, acetaminophen is the preferred common aches and pains treatment for dengue fever uh, over an NSAID. Uh, one of the things you'll see about dengue fever is also recommended for yellow fever is if you travel to an endemic area uh, and and then come back to the United States, try to limit your, your ability to get bit by a mosquito for at least three weeks afterwards. And that's just because, again, we have these mosquitoes that transmit dengue fever right here within the United States. And we don't want any of those mosquitoes to suck our blood that might happen to have some dengue fever. Whether or not we have virus uh, symptoms or not, we don't want any of those mosquitoes to get any of that blood and then potentially transmit it within the wild here in the United States and lead to a, uh, a potential local outbreak or local spread of the virus here. Um, there is a dengue uh, vaccine that's been available for a few years now. It's available in some countries. Currently, it's only recommended for those who are at least nine years old up to the age of 45, um, simply because that's the, the population that's mostly been studied in to this point in time. It is currently only recommended for those who have had a previous 
laboratory-confirmed case of dengue fever or dengue infection. That seems kind of weird. Why do we give a vaccine to somebody who's already had it? Again, keep in mind, there's four known serotypes of dengue fever. So just because you've been infected with one doesn't mean that you won't get infected with another. That's led to a lot of difficulty with developing a vaccine, and that's what we see here. Why is that, um, though? Well, so it, it's been found that if a patient, uh, so myself, I'll use myself as an example. As far as I know, I've never been infected with dengue virus. Um, and so if I were to go out and get the vaccine today because I happen to go to Haiti or somewhere, and so I just want to think, oh, I'll get this vaccine. It's available. It's, it's going to prevent me from getting dengue fever um, because I'm going to Haiti. Makes sense, right? Well, what we know from the manufacturer, they released this data, I believe, in 2017, 2018, um, that if myself, if I, having never had dengue virus infection before, got the vaccine, then I happen to go to Haiti or whatever country and get infected with dengue, especially dengue of another serotype, or if I get infected with dengue, um, then there's a very a much higher chance that I will develop severe dengue because of that. The science of that is not real well understood as to why that is, um, but it seems like if you have previously had the virus and then get the vaccine, the vaccine does a pretty good job about helping prevent you from getting dengue of any of the serotypes. Um, but if I've never been infected by the natural virus itself, get the vaccine, and then happen to get infected at that point in time, um, there's a chance that that virus will become severe dengue or the symptoms will become severe. And so that's why it's only recommended to be given to a patient who has had previous documentation of a dengue virus. Um, so again, kind of different than what we usually think about from most vaccines. Uh, but that's, again, largely probably due to the different serotypes the difficulty they've had because of those different serotypes of manufacturing a vaccine, and then this vaccine that is commercially available in large parts of the world, um, just some difficulties that are still known and associated with it. So it's, it's, it's very different. Don't just necessarily get the dengue fever vaccine or the dengue virus vaccine just because you're going to an area. It's only recommended for those who have already previously been infected. It does help those from getting any of the other serotypes. All right, so transitioning to final uh, flavivirus that we'll talk about today, yellow fever. Most likely this virus began in Africa and then came to this part of the world, um, this part of the, or this hemisphere, in about the 1600s uh, with some of the explorers that were found there. Uh, there's definitely a documentation of this disease showing up in the Yucatan and parts of Mexico uh, during that time frame. And then from there, it spread throughout. Large parts of the United States, there were documented cases in the 17 and 1800s. Uh, Philadelphia, uh, in the, the late 1700s, I believe it was 1793, there was a big outbreak in Philadelphia. At that point in time, if you remember your U.S. American history, Philadelphia was the capital of the United States. And um, if my memory recall is correct, there was about 9 to 10% of the population of Philadelphia died of yellow fever when it was our acting capital. So large parts of the population of Philadelphia left, including at the time President George Washington, um, during that outbreak of yellow fever in, in uh, Philadelphia. New York City, uh, Baltimore, other parts of uh, that part of the United States, the, the eastern uh, part of the United States, there were large outbreaks in the 18th and 19th centuries. There were definitely outbreaks as far up as the Ohio River in southern Ohio as well, uh, more in my part of the area of the world uh, throughout the 18th and 19th centuries as well. Um, then in the 20th century, we did a pretty nice job about really uh, helping to limit the spread of yellow fever. Largely that was due to insecticides and being able to go in and spray insecticides throughout parts of the world where we saw this, such as, you know, lots, large parts of the United States. And we, by controlling the mosquito population, by controlling that vector, we were able to limit the spread of yellow fever. 
Uh, now, many of those insecticides that were used at that point in time have been withdrawn from the market because of adverse effects on other wildlife. And so there is a growing concern amongst many people in the know about yellow fever that we could see a yellow fever resurgence because of limited availability of effective insecticides. Um, currently, we definitely still see yellow fever spread throughout the world. The World Health Organization estimates that there's about 200,000 cases per year. Uh, there's definitely not 200,000 reported cases per year, but 200,000 cases are, are anticipated per year and with about 30,000 deaths. Uh, so here you can see areas of yellow fever risk. Again, uh, largely associated with the, the equator. And looking at the equator slightly north, slightly south of the equator is where we run the risk of developing yellow fever. Um, this map in and of itself is from the CDC again. And the yellow color is where vaccine is recommended. Uh, the, the brownish color looking at parts of Brazil there, Rio de Janeiro, um, Sao Paulo, on the, the eastern coast of Brazil, uh, there's been an outbreak going on since about 2017. So there, while in the past we did not really recommend yellow fever vaccine, it is now recommended for those. And then the, uh, the dark gray and the gray area where there is currently no uh, recommendation or at least not generally recommended to get the yellow fever vaccine. Uh, the one thing I will say about this map is is definitely you want to go to the cdc's website or another resource if you are traveling to any of the, the areas within this map and see what the current vaccine requirements are and because that can change at any point in time and so uh, if you are traveling you know potentially to parts of uh, western africa uh, you will not be allowed in the country if you do not have proof that you've had yellow fever vaccine uh, some countries are like that no matter where you're flying from. Some countries are only concerned about if you're flying from an area where there is yellow fever outbreak. So if you're traveling directly from the United States to those countries, you don't technically need to have yellow fever vaccine or documentation to allow you entry to the country. But let's say you're traveling from the United States to Brazil. And for whatever reason, you're in Brazil for a while, and then you travel on to Africa. Now that you landed in Brazil, you now have been in a country where there is current yellow fever risk. And so while if you had tr directly traveled from the United States to that country in Africa, maybe you didn't need documentation of yellow fever vaccine. Now, because you had a stop in Brazil, you do need documentation of yellow fever vaccine to get into that country. So always good to go to the CDC's website or another resource especially with a multi-country trip to make sure you document out or track out your map and figure out, do I need this just because of you don't want to end your trip short because the country won't let you in because you didn't have documentation. Again, best case scenario, just get the vaccine and then you're covered. Make sure you take your yellow card. Um, that's what they call the proof of vaccine. Take that with you, stick it in your passport so you always have it with you um, and then you're good to go. Symptoms. Shockingly enough, just like with everything else we've talked about today, uh, most people have no symptoms of yellow fever. Is symptoms develop again? Flu-like. Common aches, common pains, fever, chills, headache, backache, that sort of thing are what we commonly see with yellow fever. Just like with dengue, we see a risk of, of bleeding with yellow fever. And so just like with dengue, uh, we do from NSAIDs because NSAIDs do increase the risk of bleeding or prevent our body from clotting appropriately. And so we, we do recommend staying away from NSAIDs if those symptoms show up in a patient who was in recent, recently in a yellow fever country. If severe symptoms develop, then hospitalization um, is recommended. And again, similarly with the dengue fever, the, the CDC has a nice little one-page handout for treatments, especially of a, of a patient who develops severe yellow fever, uh, but largely similar. Use fluids, uh, isotonic fluids uh, for that patient who develops shock and, and continuing on through that uh, perspective, potential risk for colloid or potentially using colloidal treatment as well for shock patients, as well as using packed red blood cells if needed for that patient who 
Travel recommendations, uh, again, fairly similar to what we see with Dengue Fever, what we saw with Dengue Fever. Um, none of the, the real strict requirements like we saw with Zika about uh, families or people trying to start families or continue families. Uh, but definitely preventing mosquito bites is huge. Uh, vaccine, yellow fever vaccine. Get it. Um, if you're going to these areas, if you're going to these areas frequently, just get it and be done with it. It's a one-shot deal. Uh, it's a one-and-done dose, so it's thought to be protective uh, for life. So again, like we talked about previously, some countries will find proof of that vaccine before they will let you in. Um, especially, again, map out where you're going. If you're doing a multi-country trip, make sure you figure out if for whatever reason you can't get or don't want to get the yellow fever vaccine, uh, make sure that your trip doesn't include countries that now require a yellow fever vaccine if you travel from an area of high endemic use. Again, many countries, if you're traveling directly from the United States to those other countries, don't require proof of yellow fever vaccine because there's no yellow fever transmission in the U.S. right now. But if you make a stop where there is currently yellow fever outbreak, then that game changes and you may need documentation that you have yellow fever vaccine. So always check CDC's Traveler's Health webpage um, for up-to-date vaccine requirements. I recommend that for any patients who's going anywhere uh, and, and just type in the country. Uh, so if you're going to Belize for vacation, just go to the CDC's website, type in Belize, and you'll see what the current recommendations for Belize are. And for many countries, you can dial it down to the particular cities where you're going for and going, going to. And so, for example, if you're going to Ethiopia uh, and you're going to Addis Ababa, and you're only staying in the city, you have different recommendations for those patients who are only staying in the city than those patients who may be going to some of the outlying areas of Ethiopia. So at, at hopefully, as I understand how this will work from GMHC this year, uh, I'll be joining you live uh, at the end of this to be able to answer any questions that you may have uh, about this. If you do have any questions at all, don't hesitate to reach out to me. Um, my email address, not that you can read my writing, is Mosler, M-O-S-L-E-R, at Findlay, F-I-N-D-L-A-Y, dot E-D-U. I really need to practice my penmanship. Um, so that, again, that's Mosler, my last name, M-O-S-L-E-R, at Findlay, F-I-N-D-L-A-Y, dot E-D-U. I'm always happy to answer questions through that, and I know um, having uh, participated in many past uh, GMHC events in the, uh, previously, uh, I often get emailed questions and I really enjoy interacting with people in that environment. So don't hesitate to reach out to me at any point in time um, in the future. So that ends uh, our, our little time together today. Again, I hope you found this at least somewhat helpful. Uh, pretty fairly basic stuff. I think pretty scary disease states or disease names. We think of scary things. But again, keep in mind, most people are just fine if they get infected with Zika, Dengue, or Yellow Fever. Uh, it's the people, the, the unfortunate small percentage of people um, who do uh, end up needing additional healthcare help outside of just normal uh, aches and pains. So again, thank you for your time today, and I look forward to talking, interacting with you guys in the future.